HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Are you looking for a way to break the summer heat and all the heat waves we've been having? I've got an answer for you. Might not be what you expect. Coming up on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And indeed, we are recording this during uh, the hot summer heat. And uh, it is something that I thought would be so appropriate because it really did cool me off. And I'm talking about the cuisine of Antarctic, of the Antarctic. And I'm not sure whether this is the culinary history of the Antarctic or the history of culinary deprivation, but it is indeed an interesting read. It is a story called Hoosh. Roast Penguins, Scurvy Day, and Other Stories of Antarctic Cuisine by Jason Anthony. And Jason, I have him on the line from Maine. It must be a little cooler up there than it is down here anyway. Hi, Jason. Hi, Linda. How are you? (laughs) Good, thank you. Um, Jason is a veteran of eight seasons in the United States Antarctic Program. He writes a blog and has wonderful photographs posted online of um, of his excursions. And he tells a tale of the history of the Antarctic explorers as well as modern-day Antarctic, the the United States Antarctic Program um, and National Science Foundation programs. Uh, Jason, tell me, how did you get involved in going to the Antarctic? Well, like like so much in my life, it was uh, really a question of happenstance. I was in a, a poetry MFA program at the University of New Hampshire, and uh, one of the other people in that program, actually he was in the fiction program, was a guy named Jim Mastro, uh, who uh, has now also put out a couple books about Antarctica, mostly about diving underneath the ice there. But uh, he was in the fiction program, and uh, we got we get became uh, become friends, and um, and he told me all about the Antarctic, and it seemed like a really uh, seemed like the next logical step after getting a master's in poetry, you know. <laughs> what you, I mean, were you that hard up for material to write about, or? <laughs> 
<laughs> just something <laughs> you wanted much, to do. Uh, question of material is, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the the dearth of jobs waiting for me. I think. Yeah. Well, uh, that's no, it. Just it just seemed like a really good adventure, and um, and uh, it wasn't on my radar at all, really, before that. But huh. uh, but this opportunity came up, and uh, I had done a lot of uh, backcountry, uh, you know, hiking and canoeing, and so going to sort of a difficult place didn't. Uh, bother me too much, although, of course, it was quite different than, say, hiking on the Appalachian Trail. Right. Um, well, then you you immersed yourself in the history of the explorers of the Antarctic. and uh, But before we even go there, because we're, we're obviously want to talk about the food and the food issues, right. um, can you explain to our listeners, I mean, we've all, you know, in our junior high uh, science projects in history, you know, we, we read, we've read about different things, all of us, I'm sure, and some went on to study more, but really describe to us what the terrain is in that region um, and what a so-called summertime would be. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, we're talking about a place that's uh, as large as the U.S. and Mexico combined in area, although my favorite comparison is that it's about the same size as China and India combined. Wow. Uh, but it's, instead of two billion people, you know, uh, there are uh, maybe 7,000 uh, peak population during the uh, austral summer. Uh, and um, to give a sense of the Antarctic, you want to sort of think about the sort of three main landscapes. You have the coast, which is what most people who have an image of Antarctica in their head uh, think of, you know, where you have icebergs and penguins and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and that's where I spent most of my time. And I would see in the summer... Uh, a temperature range of, say, 25 below to 40 or 45 above. Huh. Um, so not, not so different from, say, um, you know, uh, northern Maine, let's say, or, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, but most of Antarctica is not the coast. It's the interior, and, uh, and then there's also the Transantarctic mountain range. Uh, and once you get into the interior, uh, you're talking about, uh, you know, the coldest place on Earth uh, is in the middle of Antarctica, a recorded temperature of about 129 degrees below zero. That's a wintertime temperature. But at the South Pole, uh, where the landscape you know, is just flat and white, it's snow on top of uh, about two miles of ice. Two miles um, thick, right? The ice is two, two miles, miles deep. Thick. Yeah, yeah, wow. uh, yeah the, uh, the thickest part of the Antarctic ice cap is about three miles deep. Really just a phenomenal, phenomenal amount of, of water locked up in ice there. Enough, if it all melted, that the... Uh, Sea levels around the world would, would rise about 200 feet, which is a lot of water when you think about it. Yes. And, uh, but at the South Pole, uh, summertime temperatures range from about, um, let's say, 55 below to zero, you know, maybe a few degrees above zero. A heat wave would be, say, five or, five or ten degrees. That's quite <laughs> unusual. Uh, and I would imagine it's a very dry heat as well. I mean, dry, cold, uh, dry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's extremely dry in the Antarctic. Uh, and that uh, that plays a role in the cooking, of course, uh, right. as well uh, in today's world. But um, uh, and you know, uh, it played a large role in the explorers' experience uh, right. as well. As severe dehydration. Oh, I'm sure we'll get to that. Right. Uh, well, one yeah, the, the, one has to wonder why an explorer ever thought to go there in the first place. I guess it's there, so they have to conquer it, right? Um, it's like that mountaintop. It's, it's well, there. It's, it's that blank either. spot on the map, you know, right. uh, coming out of, the, you know, out of that whole sort of uh, European desire to uh, to make their map of the world. Uh, what's interesting is, uh, as one writer has said, is that uh, Antarctica, you know, went from becoming an unknown blank spot on the map to a known blank spot on the map. 
right. in that you're looking at a lifeless terrain, you know, say larger than the U.S. Well, and, um, um, I, what I wanted to um, to get to were, was, you know, you've just described a very bleak terrain and and, and unhumane uh, weather conditions. So food is a real issue, and the first explorers who went, I mean, many of whom died, but there were some who went back multiple times, and I think particularly Sir Ernest Shackleton. Um, what, can you describe what they did as far as, what, what happened as far as food? Would they have to bring everything with them? Correct, yeah. Uh, you, you have, um, when you think about what these early explorers uh, had to deal with in terms of food, there's a... Um, there's sort of two main uh, situations. You have uh, what they would bring to, to live on uh, in their... Usually they would live either on board their ship or in a hut that they would build on the coast. Uh, and that's one scenario. And the other is when they would make treks into the uh, unknown interior uh, where they had, could only carry uh, you know, a minimal amount of food. So on the coast, um, they lived off of, in large part, what they could carry in their little wooden ships uh, coming, back, coming down through the, through the ice to, uh, from Europe. And, uh, but often they couldn't bring enough uh, to sustain themselves for, let's say, you know, say 30 men, you know, for, for two years. Now, did uh, they, I so, mean, and right, when, aside from the, the weight, I mean, did they underestimate the, the caloric need in those temperatures uh, as, as well as the, you know, the heavy work they were doing? I think, you know, there, there was enough background in, in Arctic exploration that they, that they knew that deep cold required, you know, more food. But but they were limited you know, simply by what they could fit uh, on their ship, and they mm-hmm. would bring sort of a sort of a uh, an approximation of what they what they lived on at home in a sense, you know, the flour and sugar and and, uh, and canned goods and, and whatnot, uh, and then they would supplement that as necessary with the local wildlife. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking we're talking the late 1800s for the first explorers, the the first the very, explorers, the first. Um, well, it's, it's funny. I like to say that Antarctica was the only real sort of significant place actually discovered by Europeans. You know, everything else, people have been living there for thousands of years. Uh, and, um, but the, it, and Antarctica is very new in the human experience. There's no Aboriginal experience there. Uh, it wasn't sighted until 1820. First people to, uh, to spend a night there, as it were, or to spend the winter was 1898. Hmm. So this, this period of exploration that, that we're starting to talk about here, the heroic age as, as it's known, Starts starts in 1898 and goes to about 1922. After that, uh, we start looking at machines and things. Um, but uh, but yeah, they were they they were supplementing uh, to a large degree their diet with um, with uh, penguins and especially seals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the good news in this is that uh, there were plenty available on the coast. Uh, there was absolutely nothing available once they went inland. But on the coast, they could really um, uh, you know have, they could just walk up to. Uh, any of these creatures uh, and kill them. They had no fear of, of a terrestrial predator like man because they, there was none. Right, right. And which, uh, just to alert our listeners in case they're appalled by this, um, yeah. the cute little penguins, that um, they are now considered endangered or just it's outlawed to uh, to kill them? Um, uh, popula- no, they're not endangered. Populations are quite quite healthy. Just uh, all the, not allowed to kill But there, yeah, that, there's all Antarctic wildlife is protected now, uh, and um, you know, in my experience uh, from 1994 to 2004, all of that occurred, you know, uh, well after all of the wildlife had been protected. So I have not eaten a penguin uh, or a seal, mm-hmm. uh, but they were they were an essential component to the survival of early explorers. Well, now, you, your title of your book 
is hoosh, and you talk a lot about hoosh throughout the book. Describe what that is for our listeners. Sure. Well, it's a really interesting word. It's a fun word to say. And uh, it's, it's a sort of linguistic cousin of, of the word hooch, which some, many people are familiar with as a, sort of a slang for, for cheap liquor. Uh, but, for, but for British polar explorers, it was a slang term for a stew they would make uh, from pemmican, which I'll explain in a second, and uh, melted snow, basically. And they would often thicken it with a crushed biscuit, sort of like a, uh, endurance you know, a carb that, uh, that explorers, uh, British explorers are fond of. Uh, it's sort of a hard tack. Kind right, of thing. right. And um, uh, pemmican, for those who don't know, uh, is it's a Native American word, it's an Ojibwe term, um, for a really the, the, the perfect endurance food. It was the, really the best sort of um, emergency-slash-endurance food uh, ever created until, uh, until I guess, uh, whatever modern science has come up with at this point, sort of the cliff bar type stuff. Those little goo, packets of goo that the uh, Tour de France writers use, <laughs> but uh, uh, but pemmican really was you know it's the origin of, of the of these uh, of the endurance foods that are popular today, uh, and it consists of uh, they would take uh, the meat of a, a lean meat of an animal, say an antelope or bison, they would dry it, uh, then they would uh, grind it, shred it uh, into, into uh, either powder or, or fine shreds, then they would mix it fifty-fifty with the fat, rendered fat of that animal. Uh, and they would basically make a block of of this uh, uh, pro- dry protein and fat, and sometimes they would uh, mix some dried berries into it uh, to give it a little bit of flavor. Uh, and uh, probably, I think, on an intuitive level, they knew that the berries were good to keep up, to fend off scurvy. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, by the time we get to this uh, heroic age of Antarctic exploration, uh, pemmican was no longer this sort of um, Native American uh, creation. It was, a industri- it was an industrial version uh, being made by a couple companies in Europe, and it was sort of a canned food. And it sort of had the consistency of a hard cheese, uh, and uh, and I think it looked a lot like we think of sort of like kind of a uh, imagine like wet dog food in a can, except without the wet, you know, denser. And uh, and it's most uh, what's beautiful about, uh, beautiful about pemmican is that it, it represents the most amount of calories you can pack into the smallest amount of space and weight. And that is the gold standard when you talk about uh, exploration into uh, inhospitable uh, conditions, you know, where there is no food waiting for you. Mm. So it w- a very little of this would go a long way as well when making, when making a hoosh, right? That's correct. You, you know, to make the hoosh, they would take a, a, you know, a packet or a, a can of this pemmican and, um, and put, it, put it into the pot of, of water, which was melted snow. The one thing Antarctica does provide uh, in, in large quantities is, uh, is snow to melt for water. Uh, as long as you have fuel, you can right. melt snow for water. Right, that's what I was going to say, because there is such a danger of dehydration in the Antarctica that, that you think, well, but there's all that snow, all that water, except you need to melt it, right? So you need right. fuel. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, eating snow directly, uh, as some people may, may, may know, is you, you burn a fair amount of calories warming snow to a point where your body can then... Uh, you know, take it in as, uh, as warm water. And uh, so there's, there's not a lot of uh, uh, energy gained, in a sense, uh, in, uh, in eating snow directly. Uh, and, and these guys, you know, when they were on the trail, trying to be the first ones to the South Pole, for example, or mapping unknown parts of Antarctica, dehydration was a, was a really constant state because they, they couldn't um, take the time or, or bring it, you know, enough fuel to conserve their fuel uh, to, be, to be melting water, uh, melting snow all the time. 
uh, they, you know, these guys who were trying to go to the South Pole, for example, and, uh, and um, the first attempt was in 1903, then in 1907, Shackleton got very close, and then finally was reached in 1911. Um, you know, they they only had uh, uh, water at, at their three hoosh meals a day, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And they're they're burning a tremendous amount of calories, uh, and uh, and expelling a tremendous amount of moisture while um, traveling across that landscape. Well, your descriptions and stories, I mean, taken in part from a lot of the journals and, and letters and histories written, were just, I was, I was in a complete deep freeze and, a, and a, a, a feeling of starvation. I mean, these people were, they thought, dreamt, and talked about food all the time because they had none. Is that correct? Well, yeah, well, I think the unstated thesis of my book is that, you know, the the worse the food, the better the story, you know, hmm. and uh, which uh, uh, is not sort of what we think of in terms of food, typically, at least in, in the foodie world. No. But um, uh, yeah, the, the um, I think whenever you're an extremist, you know, there's there's that longing for things you, you don't have, uh, and so even in the huts, they would, they would you know, where they had a, had sufficient amount of food and, and they were they were sufficiently warm, uh, they were still dreaming of, of uh, sort of you know, the, the better the better things at, at home. Uh, but then once on the trail, things really got desperate, and they they were they were carrying pemmican and biscuits, and maybe a few little treats like some cocoa powder or, or tea, and that's about it, really. And having and, to par- uh, and having to parse those out over you know how many months and how many you know how many weeks it was. Right, right. As Robert Falcon Scott said, you know that the trick is to to supply each man with just enough food to get the job done and nothing more. Huh. And uh, and uh, and then so that you can make your make your distances and uh, get go beyond where anyone or any human has, has been before. Well, you and, and you mentioned dehydration being a problem, but also um, you mentioned also scurvy. And scurvy was was one of the dangers that, of course, many people weren't aware that that was going to occur, and then it did. Then they learned more, and and um, some of these these groups of explorers were wiped out uh, due to scurvy. How what did they do to correct that? Well. Yeah, scurvy has a really fascinating history, uh, and you could do a whole show on scurvy if, uh, <laughs> if there's anyone interested in listening. Mm. But uh, uh, but scurvy, is, as people know, I think is a, is a deficiency of vitamin C. Uh, vitamins weren't understood, uh, weren't identified in a sense until uh, 19, late 1920s. And um, but the experience of scurvy was was deeply uh, uh, known uh, through uh, European culture uh, and, and around the world, really. But uh, but especially in the British Navy, let's say, and um, uh, there's this there's a, there's a funny history here where science really got in the way of the solution. Medical science got in the way of the solution, where uh, through sort of a, a bit of early science and whatnot, they realized that uh, citrus would would cure scurvy um, and prevent it. In fact, if you took it as a preventative, uh, but then over time, uh, through some mistakes that were made, uh, like you know, cooking up rather than having fresh Fresh citrus, they would uh, cook it in um, in copper pots, and, and uh, that would actually destroy the vitamin C. Of course, they didn't know that was happening. Uh, and then they switched to limes, and, then, and limes don't have as much vitamin C. And so you have this process by which um, the cure became uh, well, thought of no longer as a cure. And so, but you know, we're well into the early 1900s. You know, where really amazing things are starting to happen in science. You know, we're talking about you know the origins of atomic physics and all this stuff, and we're st- we still have guys dying of scurvy in the Antarctic. And um, uh, the one thing that was understood by by uh, you know people in the Arctic, by the, 
Inuit and by uh, some people who respected what the Inuit knew, the Norwegian explorers in particular. They, they knew that you could also get vitamin C um, from, from meat, uh, but meat had to be raw or very lightly cooked. Now, that was, were, that was the one thing that just astounded me, that, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, like an aha moment, you know, that I learned from this book, and that, that meat, you could get it from meat. Go on, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, um, and again, no one really knew the mechanisms here. The Inuit didn't know the, you know, the, sort of the vitamin mechanism you know, and all this, but they, they, they'd been living in the Arctic for, you know, 10,000 years, and um, whatever that, that time frame is, and, and, um, and they knew that, you know, they're in a place where there are, where there are no fresh uh, plants of any kind for a large part of the year, and um, so they, they subsisted on a diet of, uh, of, um, of raw or very lightly cooked meat and fat, uh, and scurvy uh, was rarely an issue unless this was a question of, uh, of unavailable, you know, if they couldn't get food at all. Fortunately, things have changed a lot in the situation of food with all the studies going on. And we're going to talk a lot about that when we come back and about your recent um, explorations and your preparations when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. You're listening to Bang Bang Sun by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from A Taste of the Past. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Did you know that pollinators are needed for more than two-thirds of the world's crop species? Most of these pollinators are bees. However, North America's bee population has been steadily declining since the 1990s. Whether you live in the country or the city, you can show your commitment by hosting a hive in your backyard or even on a rooftop. The beekeeping movement is growing, so you're sure to find swarms of folks who can help you find your way. Learn more about the ways you can help be the solution at wholefoodsmarket.com slash share the buzz. Well, we're talking today about Antarctic cuisine, which, you know, may seem like a... Uh, 
an odd thing to be talking about in the middle of summer, but it makes me feel cold. And my guest is Jason Anthony, and his book is is really quite a riveting um, tale of explorations. It's called Hoosh, Roast Penguins, Scurvy Day, and Other Stories of Antarctic Cuisine. And Jason, you went on a, uh, well, I'm going to repeat that you spent eight seasons. Um, those are the summer if you will, seasons, right, in the United States Antarctic program. But you did one particular, um, not exploration, but I guess a job, for 100 days, and you had to prepare three meals a day for 100 days. Tell me a little bit about that and what it was you were doing. Yeah, that that was was, was an interesting experience, getting ready for that that trip. Uh, I had been working uh, on the ice, as we say, or in the Antarctic uh, for several years at that point. And uh, had sort of moved uh, increasingly to, into doing what we call field work, you know, leaving the, the main uh, U.S. community of McMurdo base. Um, oh, but I'm going to preface this. This is already okay because we were talking about what in the old days and the explorers, but this things have changed. There's a base camp and it's well equipped, right? And you've got oh, supplies yeah. coming yeah. in and out. And okay, people, and we have indoor. Well, what I want to say, indoor greenhouses. We we're going to save that one, but all kinds of you know interesting things that that will that help supply the food and you left that camp okay now right. you can and, go on. <laughs> uh, uh so yeah the, the US Antarctic program has three bases in McMurdo station the South Pole station and then there's one on the Antarctic peninsula over on the South America side which is called Palmer uh and McMurdo has over a thousand people and you have planes coming and going and ships coming through the ice uh, toward the end of the summer and and helicopters and you know trucks and you know all sorts of things and uh, dormitories and all that and and of course relevant to this conversation a large cafeteria but yeah I left all that behind um, in, in a series of short trips uh, in previous seasons uh, going out to these field camps these temporary the tent based camps uh, in various places in East Antarctica West Antarctica and in this case in the Trans Antarctic Mountains uh, and the goal here was to create a uh, alternative an emergency landing field or emergency runway uh, for a plane that might be coming into McMurdo, uh, wasn't equipped with skis, uh, and suddenly was not able to land there in McMurdo because of uh, bad weather, which we get fairly often. And so uh, the New York Air National Guard uh, wanted us to build an emergency alternative uh, up in the mountains on what's called a blue ice glacier, uh, which is a glacier that gets so much wind being funneled down from the East Antarctic ice cap that there's no snow on that ice surface. So we were about, about uh, 5,500 feet, about a mile high, and uh, there were two of us, uh, my friend Julian Ridley and myself, and we, uh, we were to set up camp for, uh, for just over three months and to create, you know, sort of mark out this runway and then maintain it uh, in case anyone needed it. And, uh, but yeah, we had to, we had to sort of Set up, uh, you know, prepare for the entire uh, season uh, ahead of time, including including food. You know, 100 days of of of, uh, of uh, three meals a day, plus uh, lots of snacks for two tall, hungry guys. And uh, uh, and you know, it's not a particular skill of mine to really plan ahead for for weeks for uh, you know for for trips. I've done it for you know two, three week trips, and you know, you you figure it out. But this was on a scale that I uh, had not done before, and uh, but we had to. We were told to make sure we had everything we needed for the entire time because they weren't sure if we would get a resupply flight at, at any point during the summer. Well, that's kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, and anyone who's gone done any camping knows that. I mean, that 
you know, you got to be careful on how much weight and you got to plan and then you, you're always hungrier than you thought you were going to be and, right. and go on. Luckily, weight, <laughs> luckily weight wasn't the, wasn't an issue because, uh, you know, we ended up, you know, we were taking thousands, uh, thousands of pounds of material out there. We had, we had a tractor, for example, small Kubota tractor. We had, uh, drums of fuel. We had, um, you know, these hundreds of these large uh, markers to mark the edges of the runway. And, and so, you know, a couple hundred pounds of food here and there didn't matter. Uh, so weight wasn't an issue. Available, you know, quantity of food wasn't the issue. It was really a question of figuring out what we wanted to eat, uh, when we wanted to eat it, and, um, and figuring out quantities, uh, and, uh, you know, of everything from, you know, frozen, uh, tortillas to, uh, frozen pizzas to, you know, cans of this or, uh, or whatnot. And, uh, so, but we, we got, we got a, did a pretty good job. We spent, uh, a few weeks getting everything ready in McMurdo, uh, both, uh, in terms of, you know, the tractor and the, and the food and, and radios and, and all that stuff. And, uh, as it turned out, we uh, going through the season. We had flights coming all the time, so we were able to supplement here and there. But uh, but yeah, it was quite a task uh, trying to set all that. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's three hundred meals, you know. Yeah, I was going to say going to the store and planning for a week, if you have to, is is daunting enough. You know, much less a hundred days you know, for two well, keeping it keeping it simple helps, you know. Um, and uh, you know, and we had a fairly as, as by Antarctic standards, we had, a, we had a quite a luxurious um, long list of, of things to choose from. And uh, and that actually, in a sense, it almost made it more difficult. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but um, you know, you're you're working, and just the two of you don't have a staff, so you have to come back just like any you know. I'm thinking, I think camping trip, you have to come back, and you have to have the energy to prepare the food right. as well, right? That's right. Yeah. And you have a simple sort of a, a two burner Coleman camping stove, you know, propane fired, and um, uh, and. Uh, You'd have to worry about things spoiling. That was the good news. Right. Uh, and and because uh, we we our temperatures ranged from about twenty below to twenty above during that that time, uh, during over the course of the summer. Hmm. And, well, uh, go ahead. Uh, well, I just and I I wanted to um to kind of get back. You know, so you survived. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad because you could write the book. Um, right. And as it turned out, supply planes did could get to you. Um, but if you, in your thought of not having anyone be able to fly in additional supplies, what was the bulk of the um, uh, of the food that you packed? What, what did was there any one thing that became the most important item that you packed, or packed a lot of? Uh, well, we we uh, grabbed as much uh, Cadbury chocolate bars as we, as we possibly yeah. could, and and then and then took some more too. Uh, luckily, a friend of mine was running what we call the food room. Which is the room that uh, disperses food to um, uh, to field camps, and uh, and uh, Cadbury chocolate bars were sort of on everyone's wish list. Uh, I think we managed to. Uh, uh, Julian and I, being our charming selves, were able to, uh, to to steal a few more than, than we probably should have. But uh, and we, we we would carry them in our in our parka pockets. We had them stuffed in snowmobile in the seats, you know, on snowmobiles, and uh, and we ate them all the time. Well, good, quick uh, energy and, was, and fat. I mean, that's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all about survival. And um, but we, uh, you know, the thing that that come that comes the hardest that even today in in the uh, in Antarctic uh, research or Antarctic uh, life, um, you know, are, are fresh vegetables and fruit, and uh, and that's something you can't obviously uh, bring large quantities of uh, going into uh, an unheated tent uh, for any length of time. And uh, so we, you know, we. 
brought a few Aznans out when we first got out there, and then as you as you mentioned, uh, you know, we had resupply flights, either helicopters or, or planes, stopping by once in a while, and so we would get some extras. And then one day, we um, uh, a helicopter showed up with two large boxes of, or no, a large box and a, of, uh, of fresh fruit and vegetables and a 25-pound bag of potatoes. Now, remember, this is just two people, and, we're t- and we have to keep <laughs> this food from freezing and try to make use of it as quickly as possible. Oh, that's right. You so, can't, I mean, you, it's, it's too cold. It's going gonna, it's gonna to self-destruct yeah. if it's left in the, in the ambient yeah, temperature. Bro- yeah. Broccoli and lettuce doesn't like uh, 20 below very much at right. all. And, and uh, so in order to keep keep the stuff um, unfrozen for as long as we could, uh, we, you know, we sort of took care of the most delicate things right away, and then uh, the other things we would just take into our sleep bags with us at night to, to uh, keep them from freezing. So, uh, you know, the bag of potatoes, of course, wouldn't fit, but, uh, you know, cucumbers and, and um, cabbage and, and Lord knows what else, you know. Uh, and uh, so we were able to make use of most of it. We didn't lose very much, but because it just feels, it's very... I think serious sin by Antarctic standards to let fresh food go to waste. You know? Yeah, I would imagine. Well, you know, I often in reading uh, reading through the book, you know, it kept popping in my head. You know, necessity is the mother of invention, and certainly when you have limited um, ingredients, you start to get very creative with how you're going to consume them, um, if, especially if they're not edible as in their you know raw state. So I'm sure that there were a lot of Interesting dishes that came, not that you'd ever want to prepare them again, but but some interesting dishes that came out. Of well, it's, it's amazing how good things taste when you're hungry, you know. Mm. Uh, and uh, and that's of course the, the sort of watchword with uh, with um, camping anywhere, you know, is that the further you are from uh, from regular food and the hungrier you are, the better the uh, the mishmash that you just put together tastes. That's right. Um, that's right. And, well, uh, tell me about the greenhouse. Tell me about the base camp. Let's let's talk about McMurdo because that's one of the most popular um, and and larger camps. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's by far it's the largest community in all of Antarctica. It has over a thousand people. <laughs> well, I liked how you, you said the United States Antarctic program is is the largest group of humans on ice. <laughs> I thought that was a rather yeah. clever description. <laughs> yeah, when you th- you think of because it isn't you know when we when you think of uh, people in Antarctica. Uh, if, if anyone never thinks of that, uh, you, we tend, we're told by the media that it's all researchers. And you sort of think of like one big happy camp full of, uh, of scientists from around the world. But in fact, you know, all the nations that have uh, research bases down there tend to, I mean, they have their own national base. They may be next door to another national base, and they may share logistics, as we do, for example, with the, uh, with the New Zealanders. But, um, but it's, uh, you know, we have sort of these uh, sometimes quite isolated um, bases scattered around the, uh, the continent, and um, and most of them range from say a dozen people to maybe a hundred. Whereas McMurdo is, as I say, is over a thousand. Uh, South Pole is is also the, an American base, and that's the um, that's the second largest base on the continent. That is over two hundred in the summer. All of these bases have a much smaller population in the winter because uh, much less is done. The winter pop. Uh, Winter in Antarctica, you know, of course, is much colder. It's it's completely dark. There's no no flights, no ships. You know, everything. Everybody kind of hunkers down, and you have a skeleton crew to sort of uh, keep things going. Uh, but McMurdo is, is a fascinating, uh, <laughs> fascinating place. There's there's over a dozen dormitories. Uh, you have uh, I'd say over a hundred buildings, all told, between you know, from warehouse, uh, everything from unheated warehouses to 
to the large cafeteria. It's called the galley. Um, you have uh, administrative buildings. And, uh, it's hard to imagine from um, from seeing the pictures of the old explorers living in these 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 rudimentary huts. I mean, and, and crude igloos. I mean, amazing. Yeah. Well, in fact, McMurdo sits um, at the spot that's sort of sort of most famous or uh, in Antarctic exploration. It's as uh, as the early explorers figured out it was uh, it's the southernmost point you can get to on Earth uh, by ship. So therefore, uh, it was a great access point to the rest of Antarctica, mm-hmm. particularly you know in their quest to be to get to the South Pole. And um, so, there, the, so, so at McMurdo, you have greenhouses and cafeterias and food dispensaries. Um, right, and the uh, and you know and this whole complex of, of buildings it sort, of, sort of towers over in a sense. Uh, one of the very first huts built in the Antarctic in 1901 by Robert Falcon Scott, and so you know you can people walk, walk down to what's called Hut Point, uh, and there's a that, little hut down there. It wasn't so much the hut they lived in; they lived mostly on, on the ship. But they had mm-hmm. this uh, like 14 by 14 foot hut uh, for storage and, and whatnot. But it's so kind of like a museum. Hut is quite a place in Antarctic history. So I was going to say like a mu- like a museum, it. right? Like a, a museum and also a, a stark reminder the, of, of the, what it was like. That's correct. Yeah, uh, outside the um, the hut is a uh, sort of a um, the remnants of a seal uh, from a later expedition. Uh, there were there were some people in a fairly desperate situation who were using that hut uh, to um, to stay alive while they waited for the the ice the, the sea ice to freeze up again so they can get back to their hut, which is several miles up the coast. Um, but yeah, so there's there's a lot about that hut that reminds us of that early difficult time. Mm. Well, but, and and uh, some of these old camps and huts and um, you, there, people have found uh, surviving bits of food as well. Um, <laughs> pemmican, for one, which I guess is indestructible. But um, right, right. was it some? What was the, you mentioned? The oldest, the oldest um, can of pemmican that was. Oh, there was a box of food that was found, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Some, I don't uh, know if it was a box of food or was it just a a, a, a log of, of pemmican that was about forty years old or something. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe was, <laughs> I know there was uh, like when I was out at the the uh, on the glacier in that three month uh, journey, uh, we found a box of food that went back about forty years, and that mm-hmm. was from I think some New Zealand uh, uh, sort of a, a mapping crew back in the uh, late fifties, early sixties. Uh, but uh, but yeah, in these huts, in Shacklin's hut uh, at Cape Royds, and, and Robert Falcon Scott's Scott's hut, uh, Cape Evans, and then in that little hut. Um, Known as the Discovery Hut, right near McMurdo, um, there are, uh, like I say, everything from remnants of penguin seal to uh, going back you know, over a century to um, to cans of things, cans of little delicacies that that, that they had on uh, in their, you know, in their stores. They brought down things like, you know, Moir's lunch tongue, and uh, you know, or, or canned jellies, or um, you know, or Coleman's uh, mustard, you know, that sort of thing, and. Um, Coleman's flour, sorry, and um, so and these things, these huts have been cleaned up and sort of uh, sort of established as, as museums in a sense, although very very few people ever get to visit them uh, by conservators uh, who are hoping to to maintain that, that history against uh, the ravages of Antarctic weather and uh, temperatures. Well, whatever the whatever the scientific explorations and and. Uh, and designs they have on the area it certainly is keeping it very active. And I thank you for your part, Will. It's it's interesting to read about, and this indeed too will go down in history. 
And if anyone wants to cool off without getting too hungry, yeah, I, I did get pretty hungry reading it. It's a very interesting read. It's called Hoosh, and my guest has been Jason Anthony. Jason, thank you so much for sharing your time. And if you go back out there, please be careful. Okay. <laughs> I will. Thank you, Linda, very much. Okay, thanks. This has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.